Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch, is here to talk more about her investigation into the Oklahoma School of Science and Mathematics, a state boarding school for juniors and seniors. Uh, Female employees said they faced sexual harassment and some described being retaliated against for speaking out. Jennifer, I wanted to talk about who's accountable here. OSSM is a public school, not a private school, right? Uh, yes, um, it's it's a very um, unique school. It is not under the oversight of the State Department of Education, really. Um, and it, it's under the statute, its own state agency. So it's definitely not a private school, um, but I think some would say it's um, it's publicly funded, but not under the State Department of Education, if that kind of answers that. All right. And it is, as you said, publicly funded. What's their appropriation typically? So they generally get about six and a half million per year. Um, and when you consider they get, um, they're usually at around 100 students. Um, now these students live on campus, um, you know, during the school year. And so that covers room and board. And the school also does have some regional centers around the state that where kids can take classes. And, and that includes that. But the appropriation is not their only revenue source. That's right. They have a foundation um, where they get donations from a lot of uh, folks in Oklahoma, um, including, you know, um, private foundations and um, just donors and alumni, you know, many of whom are, are very successful. And they use that money to supplement the state appropriation. And corporate support too, right? Yes. Now, uh, do they have a school board? So they have a board of trustees um, that oversees the school um, by statute. And it is the probably the most unusual, definitely the most unusual governing board I've encountered in 20 years of journalism. What's what's unusual about them? Well, for one, they have 25 members, which is the largest board I've ever encountered. Now, six of those are non-voting, and that includes like the state superintendent, um, you know, the head of the uh, regents for higher ed and some of those folks, but still 19 appointed members has the board discussed the allegations of harassment that you reported on? Yes, they have. Um, you know, I attended their last meeting where they were set to discuss, but um, ended up not because the board um, had not um, sent out the agenda or noticed, um, you know, uh, posted the agenda in time Um but the month before, there was an item that had to do with employee complaints. And I found previous, um, you know, meeting records that showed that they had discussed these in the past. Now, uh, that board is in charge of hiring and overseeing a school president, a head of school, uh, to handle the day-to-day operations and presumably these kinds of employment issues that might come up, right? Who, who is that? 
Um, so for much of the time frame that the story covered, um, the president was uh, Dr. Frank Wong. Um, he, you know, I, I talked to him. He really was kind of um, a hands-off kind of president. Um, you know, he really preferred to handle these issues in more of a, um, I don't know, he said he preferred to counsel these folks and, you know, try to get them on a better path. Um, but, you know, a lot of the the women I talked to, you know, um, found a lot of fault in that because they felt like they needed a stronger hand. They needed somebody who would really fix some of these issues. Um, now, he stepped down um, a, a couple of years ago, and they just um, appointed a new president this year. And he's now, um, he, he didn't actually talk to us for the story, but he is now the, the new president. Now, uh, what about the State Department of Education? Where are they in all this? Um, so they are not overseeing this school, which is is really unusual. And some folks have, have told me they think is not correct. Um, but the only really oversight that the State Department of Education or the has is the state superintendent is a non-voting member on the board. Um, and, and I should say, you know, I meant to say earlier, one of the other really unusual things about the board of trustees at OSSM is their chair has been in place since the school was founded. So he's served 37 years now. Um, he's been reappointed under six governors. Um, and I've also never encountered that in my, you know, uh, 20 years of journalism. And it's unusual. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can uh, read Jennifer's story about OSSM as well as the rest of her education coverage on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. On Friday night, a shooter killed one person and uh, three others were shot during a high school football game in Choctaw. Another game in Tulsa was called off in the fourth quarter after a teenager brandished a pistol and caused a panic there. Reporter Keaton Ross is here to discuss gun violence at youth sporting events and how Oklahoma gun laws have evolved in recent years. Uh, Keaton, what do we know uh, so far about the shooting in Choctaw? So the shooting in Choctaw uh, in the third quarter uh, was, like you mentioned, a home game in Choctaw. They were playing Dell City. Um, gunshots were heard in the stadium, uh, obviously caused a panic. Players ran off the field. People in the stands ducked to try to uh, take cover. Um, ultimately, a 16-year-old boy was shot and killed. Um Three others were shot and injured, one of them by an off-duty Dell City officer, um, shot a 42-year-old man uh, during the incident. Um, so that that's kind of the, the gist of it. Um, as we're talking of Tuesday morning, there haven't been uh, any arrests made of, of that, that main suspect who uh, started shooting. Oh, how many officers were on the scene when the shooting occurred? There were a total of nine officers. Uh, there were five on-duty Choctaw police officers, two off-duty uh, officers from Choctaw, and then two from from Dell City uh, who were at the game. Now, there were some other injuries uh, that, uh, aside from uh, gunshot wounds, right? Yeah, there were uh, two two young females believed to be uh, students that 
suffered broken wrists and one of them had a broken leg as they were uh, trying to flee the scene as as the shots were uh, being heard and everyone was was running away from that. Now, what about the incident in Tulsa? Have officials there been able to gather much information? Yeah, that was a game uh, between Booker T. Washington and Bentonville West. Um, in the fourth quarter, a teenager flashed a gun. Uh, once people saw it, there was a mass panic, started running away. Um, that that teenager ran off into a nearby apartment complex where police were able to arrest him and recover the weapon. Um, but that that obviously um, caused a panic. Uh, the game was called off. Um, another major incident there. Now, in uh, Monday's First Watch newsletter, one of the things we reported was that shootings at youth sports events have become more common on a national scale. What does the data tell us about that? Yeah, so the data uh, that's that's been compiled by ESPN shows that there were 37 shootings at high school events in 2022, uh, causing three deaths and 34 injuries. Uh, in 2021, it was similar totals. Uh, there were 38 shootings, causing six deaths and 38 injuries, um, you know, happening across the country. Um, so we've we've seen that, unfortunately, become uh, common. I believe last year, uh, as they were tracking this information, there were 12 straight re- 12 straight weeks where there was some kind of uh, incident at, at a youth supporting event. Um, so, so that's the information they've, they've been able to gather. And I, just for clarity, ESPN reported that, but it's an, uh, independent organization that, that tracks, uh, all those school shootings and, and, uh, uh, categorizes them by, uh, what kind of event, uh, the shooting occurred at and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, that's right. Now, you uh, had previously reported about Oklahoma lawmakers loosening the state's gun laws. What are some of the notable changes that have taken effect over the past several years? Yeah, so going back to, you know, 2011, 2012 or so, we've seen uh, sort of a chipping away at uh, places where you can legally carry a gun. Um, One example is like there's a law uh, allowing guns to be carried in on public buses. Uh, that's one example. Um, the most notable law change happened in 2019, uh, when the legislature passed, uh, a permitless carry law that governor Kevin Stitt, uh, signed, signed into law, uh, was one of his, uh, goals coming into office that he, he got accomplished in his, his first year in office. Um, so that, that was a major change being able to carry, you know, a pistol or a handgun without going through that uh, training program first. Now, how has Oklahoma's uh, firearms death rate changed over the past several years? So going back to from 2011 to 2021, uh, the last year that there's data um, on firearms related deaths, uh, there's been about or a more than 25 percent increase uh, in that rate per 100,000 Um so, so that's gone up uh, considerably. Uh, of course, that data includes homicides and suicides uh, by guns. Um, so the firearm death rate in 2021 in Oklahoma was 21.2 per 100,000. Um, that was the 12th highest in the U.S. Uh, in that year. And uh, has there been a, a similar uptick nationally in firearms deaths? 
Yeah, so I uh, was looking at the data that the CDC has has compiled on this. Um, between 2014 and 2021, uh, they reported a 43% increase in, in these firearms deaths. Uh, the U.S. average in 2021 was 16.36 per 100,000. Um, so Oklahoma is, is a fair rate higher than the national average uh, in that year in 2021. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of uh, Keaton Ross's investigative work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. And if you'd uh, like to see more stories that uh, give a little broader context to local incidents like the uh, two weapons incidents at high school football games this year. Consider subscribing to our First Watch newsletter, which comes out every morning. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest investigation revealed that the Pottawatomie County Jail has been covering up the detention and deaths of people in its care. Whitney, tell us what you found. Well, Ted, as you said, we found seven people so far between 2017, that's when the current director took that role, um, to now, who died after being detained there in the jail. And essentially, families are, you know, demanding answers. They're saying the jail has been refusing to provide them with medical records and detention information uh, answers as to what happened to their loved ones. They're, you know, defying court orders to produce records. They're not producing um, open records under the Oklahoma Open Records Act. They're refusing interviews. Uh, they're really just sort of uh, putting up walls in any and every direction as to what happened to these folks. Now, when you say they're covering up these deaths, what do you mean? How how all are they doing that? Well, as I mentioned, they're they're denying records that they legally have to produce to the public. This is a you know a public entity. Uh, county jails are publicly funded, and so these folks who run the jail and who care for these detainees are beholden to public information. So things like booking sheets, you know, that tells us when the person was booked into the jail and on what charges, um, all the way to medical records that, of course, those are not public information, but families have the right to those records. And pretty much everything in between is being withheld. Now, in um, addition to uh, those records being withheld from the family and the public, uh, don't they have some reporting responsibilities when when there's a death at the jail? Absolutely. So anytime there's a, a death at any jail in the state, the jail is responsible for reporting that death to the state health department. And that's because the state health department is the regulatory body over jails and specifically over health and safety conditions at jails. So in other words, you know, the health department, they're the ones who inspect these jails to ensure that they are safe for the people being detained inside of them. So of the seven people you mentioned who have died uh, since 2017, uh, were all of those reported to the health department? No, in fact, most of them were not. Two of the seven were reported to the health department. The other five were not. Now, uh, the director that you mentioned and the uh, trustees that run the jail, uh, if they're concealing those records, how did you find out any of this was happening? 
That's a great question. Well, it really started with some reporting earlier in the year on a man named Ronald Given. A lot of our listeners have probably heard me talk about him before. Um, the short of it is he was detained there in the jail in 2019 uh, for something like 12 hours. He had a mental health crisis and jailers beat him to death inside the jail. In trying to find out more about what happened to Ronald Given, I discovered that the health department did not have one of these death reports that the jail is obligated to submit to them. And then as I was looking at some other deaths that, that came up in completely unrelated reporting, uh, I started finding that there was another one that didn't get reported and another one. And so essentially what I did is I, I cross-referenced what the health department did have with what the medical examiner's office has. And of course, the medical examiner, they get called anytime someone dies in a jail, anytime a detainee dies, and those deaths get marked as detention deaths. So the short of it is the medical examiner had more detention deaths happening in Pottawatomie County than the health department. Now, uh, the director you mentioned, uh, her name is Breonna Thompson. Uh, she took over in 2017. You said there were seven people who have died at the jail since then. What do you know about what happened to those seven people? Well, we have autopsy reports for all seven of those folks. So we do have a little bit of information. I've also been talking with some of those families. And it looks like, at least from what we can tell so far, um, a lot of them, in fact, all seven of them had either severe mental or medical conditions going into the jail. Uh, a few of these folks were arrested during a mental health crisis, Ronald Given being one of them. I mentioned him earlier, as well as a woman named Kelly Wright. She was arrested um, during a mental health crisis and died um, pretty mysteriously uh, 24 hours later in her case, we know that she died of, of cardiac issues. She had hypertension and a history of ethanol use. But what we don't know is why she was covered in bruises and had broken bones when she arrived at the hospital. Now, uh, you've talked to the families of uh, some of those people. What have the families had to say? That's right. Well, the families are pretty distressed. Uh, as you can imagine, they're grieving these very unexpected deaths of their loved ones. In some cases, they didn't even know their loved ones were in jail before they found out they were, you know, on life support in a hospital. So uh, super unexpected. And they want answers. They want to understand what happened during their detention, what happened between the time they went into the jail and the time they got to the hospital that caused them to die. And they're, they're pretty frustrated that they're not getting answers. Now, you mentioned that you've been trying to get records from uh, the jail and the trustees. Were you able to talk to any of them about what you found and, and ask them uh, to explain some of that pattern? Well, we tried for about two months, really, to get in touch with folks at the jail, specifically the director and the trustees who oversee the jail. And again, we continued to hit those roadblocks. Uh, just last week, I was able to go to a meeting for the trustees where the jail director, Brianna Thompson, and uh, four of the five trustees were present. I asked them if I could, you know, disclose my findings and hear what they had to say about it. And they just refused to even listen to what we had found, let alone, you know, answer questions or talk to us about it. 
All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. <clears throat> Whitney will be back with us again uh, next week's podcast to continue the story about the deaths at the Pottawatomie County Jail and uh, their failure to report five of those. You can also read all of uh, Whitney's findings on that investigation on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.